If we put together several components of previous episodes, for example, the gardener architect metaphor typology, the suggestion that we make a distinction between deterministic and indeterministic, but that it's a false opposition, a false uh, basis for the debate, we can see that we're not trapped in a world defined by chance and necessity, as Jacques Monod once said and wrote a famous book with that title. The process of learning lies sometimes in between the gardener and the architect. Architectural learning, training as we've called it, knows what it's doing, knows where it's going and has a pretty good idea how to get there. Its strength is also its weakness. Its strength is that it can do what it wants to do. Its weakness is that it's not very adaptable or flexible if things change. And we may find ourselves having to tear down buildings and unmake machines in order to adapt them to new circumstances. On the other hand, the gardener isn't completely random, but there is a chance element I don't think that anybody would suggest that we should design a school or educational curriculum, for example, based upon random subjects, so that we would treat everything just having, as having the same importance in our curriculum as everything else. Astronomy and astrology would be taught next to one another, alchemy and chemistry, uh, mythology and science. I don't think anybody would think that that was a serious proposition. Whether it should be is something to be debated elsewhere. But if one thinks about reading, sometimes we say, I want to know something, and you look it up on Wikipedia or in former years in, a, in an encyclopedia, or you go out and buy a book and you read the book because you want to know about dogs or stars or whatever it might be. At other times, we are much more serendipitous. We go into bookshops or we go into libraries, we take books off shelves, we buy them, we loan them, borrow them, and we're not quite sure where we're going with them, but we look. We think we, we like the look of them, we think they're interesting. A little bit like the gardener who has a pretty good idea of what sorts of plants or trees he wants to grow, but isn't quite sure what's going to come up, metaphorically and literally. But there is another possibility, and this is the one that I want to link with the unconscious cognition idea. And that's the possibility that we find ourselves semi-deliberately doing something, reading something, even writing or saying something, without an absolutely clear picture in mind of where we're going, but also not even as arbitrarily as the seed-planting gardener 
metaphor might suggest, but because we have a kind of instinct that it's important, as if our unconscious brain is somehow telling us you need to read this for reasons that will become apparent sometime in the future. I guess that, although I can see that there are going to be lots of objections to this, it's a little bit like someone who, for some reason, suddenly has an obsession with eating a particular kind of food and that it turns out that something in their body had identified a vitamin or nutritional deficiency and the binge eating was designed, in quotes, to remedy it. As if the brain is saying, I'm, I'm working on this, I need more material, I can't quite explain what material I need in conscious terms, but it's somewhere here. So we find ourselves reading, writing, saying, studying, immersing ourselves in something without quite understanding why. This isn't, I think, quite as mysterious or implausible as it might seem. When we immerse ourselves in something without quite knowing why, it can be genuinely interesting, but we might be inclined to say, well, I'm sure I should be doing something much more important, or I don't see how this helps. Uh, I don't see why this even begins to present a potential uh, means to solve a problem. And yet, later on, you read something and you suddenly say, oh, now I understand why something led me to read, write, say, study that. Because it turns out to have a significance that wasn't foreseeable, wasn't apparent at the time. And certainly during the course of my life, I've had many occasions, I can remember many occasions, when I've been doing something of that kind, where I've been thinking about one thing, apparently become distracted by something else, but then found that the detour that I thought I was taking somehow bends back and rejoins the mainstream and illuminates the, the mainstream and clarifies and helps to solve a problem that was already on the agenda. If we are too much minded to be architects, we will tend to be too disparaging about the frivolous or what seems to be the frivolous. We we can see this in parents, for example, who are not at all happy when their children appear to be playing or doing things that they think are frivolous or just messing about or even doing things that parents, because of their own uh, genesis, don't understand. There's nothing more 
mysterious than the fascination that a child can suddenly have for something or with something that a parent thinks incomprehensible. And although children follow all sorts of patterns in this, you know, they love to play with soldiers or dolls or pretending to be cooking or pretending to be making castles in sand, all these things are stereotypical childhood activities, sometimes children will become obsessed with something that parents find very odd. And the danger, and of course it's, a, it's very much a matter of, uh, of balance here, the danger is that the parent not understanding it will try to repress it, where what the child's unconscious cognition is telling it is you should do this because this is going to prove important later on. And I think in my, on my theme of trusting the 90% of our brains that are involved in the unconscious cognition, we should give much more leeway, uh, much more freedom and perhaps even more encouragement to the kinds of activities that give rise to that sort of unforeseeable but beneficial realization that that children through following their instincts from what following what interests them even obsesses them will come to be able to do something or know something or think something or solve something or whatever it might be that a well-meaning but misguided external observer would have prevented them from doing if that person wasn't persuaded that there is such a thing as unconscious cognition, that children can be doing things without consciously uh, assessing why, because, of course, children don't obsess uh, assess things consciously, and yet those things can still be important. So... This is, a, this is an argument for a much less strictly defined curriculum, certainly for much less directive and controlling parenting, and very much in favour of, not just for children, but for children and adults, allowing their unconscious brains to carry on doing things even when they don't make sense even when we don't yet have the framework within which to make sense of them. And so we need, here it comes again, to step back from the preconceived notion of what makes sense, to unmake our preconceived notions of what makes sense in order to give, re- give space and freedom and flexibility out of which a new kind of sense can eventually emerge.